peace, my people. You're tuning in to I Must Be Bugging, where black, gifted, and otherwise neurodivergent folks celebrate our special flavors. If you've ever questioned your perspective in a world built for the masses, welcome home. I'm your host, Sheldon Gay, and I appreciate you joining me on this journey as a late-identified black, gifted man. Together, we'll rewrite the script on neurodiversity by celebrating our differences, challenging the status quo, and breaking free from old narratives that label us as deficient. In each episode, we'll explore the stories, experiences, and of course, the curiosities of black gifted adults and other neurodivergent people who are underrepresented or unidentified in a world where normal can also mean harmful. So continue with me on this journey of self-discovery, empowerment, and acceptance. I Must Be Bugging is creating safe spaces, sparking conversations, and making sure our voices are heard. Welcome to another episode of I Must Be Bugging. This is your host, Sheldon Gay. As always, 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 so excited that you're joining us again. Um, today, I have a very special guest that I'm excited to introduce you to. Um, I think that, again, you all are going to love the, um, you know, the alignment with the purpose of the podcast. Uh, you know, as we've talked about from the beginning, you know, just being able to speak to broad neurodivergent experiences, but particularly, you know, that that capital B and the I must be bugging, right? That black experience, and and again, just speaking in general to our, uh, you know, our our otherwise, um, you know, marginalized communities. You know, being able to speak to those topics, I think, is something that we're gonna be able to dig into today from, uh, you know, an informed angle. So I'm I'm excited to to talk about that. Um, so. You know, again, my name is Sheldon Gay. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, to give you a little bit of a description, today I am wearing my over-ear headphones. I am a uh, 42-year-old black male, like faded side, got a curly hair on the top, mustache, little tuft of a goatee, and today I am wearing a green t-shirt. Um, and so with that, let me introduce our very special guest, Dr. Kimberly Douglas. Dr. Kimberly Douglas is a coach and consultant to neurodivergent adults. Dr. Douglas is currently developing a think tank to meet the information and other needs of, uh, and I always um, am curious about how people pronounce this. I'm going to do my, my <laughs> pronunciation, ADHDers, um, people who are autistic and have ADHD. Uh, Dr. Douglas became a full-time coach after working as staff peer-reviewed researcher, faculty, and administrator in higher education for over 17 years. She began the neurodivergence advocacy work over 13 years ago when she became the chief advocate for her son, who is neurodivergent. She's got, since gotten more in touch with her own neurodivergence, and Dr. Douglas is married to Dean Tate and lives in Tennessee. So please welcome uh, Dr. Douglas to the podcast. Dr. Douglas, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, so um, we I like to always start with kind of a, a a basic primer for folks. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that you're doing, and whether or not you identify as neurodivergent. Which I think we kind of know the answer, but I'm curious to hear how how you think about it. Okay, Dr. Kimberly Douglas, and yes, I do identify as neurodivergent. 
I don't have a formal diagnosis, but I do identify as ADHD, uh, both mm-hmm. autistic and ADHD. And I became more aware of my neurodivergence or became aware in the process of getting services and supports for my son who has been diagnosed with both mm. ADHD and autism. And I definitely see myself in his experience. Um, of course, different because I am a black woman and he is a black uh, boy growing up in the United States, but a uh, lots of similarities and things that I could apply to my own life. And mm. my pronouns are she, her. Uh, today, I am wearing a black top and I have it a little bit of makeup with some uh, snazzy red lipstick. And I have salt and pepper colored hair. At this point, still more pepper than salt. <laughs> and so I'm good with it. And we'll see where it goes from there. And um, I'm happy to be here. Just really excited to be here. But um, so most of my adult career, most of my adult career, I worked in academia. I was a faculty member. I've been an administrator. The area that I tenured in is information science. So I'm a systems thinker and I'm a person who likes to put tools and resources together for people. And I realized that I have a knack for working with other neurodivergent people. And what I help them do what I assist in doing is helping them develop ideas they have, and that may be in the form of a business or a project mm. that they're working on. Um, and I work with people to help from at various stages of their projects, helping conceptualize what their projects are, think about what resources they need. Because of my administrative executive leadership experience, thinking about how to put operations together, how to do strategic planning, um, and how to put the whole picture together or figuring out mm-hmm. which part of the picture they have, which parts of their picture they need. Um, but it takes a, a special kind of, a special set of skills to be able to do that and work with people in their personal regulation, um, really understanding how neurodivergent people process, how they think. A lot of my clients, we work on something and they have to go away and they have to think about it and come back. And so mm-hmm. there has to be grace and patience for that, but also an understanding fundamentally of how these neurodivergencies work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. I, I think it's really important and just really interesting to think about how we help each other as neurodivergent people kind of um, find our lane, right? I think how a lot of things are set up for us it's us kind of, you know, wondering, excuse me, why there are hurdles or like how, how do we jump through these hoops? But I think it's really powerful when somebody can kind of understand the experience and, and help us kind of work through, um, you know, like I said, making sense of how our mind works and, and leveraging the power that's there as opposed to trying to conform it to to another way of working, if that makes sense. And so, um yeah, excited to to hear that you're doing doing that work um, and helping people again feel seen and heard, which I think is is really really critical. Um, so yeah, so I know one of the things you and I talked about before was around um, you know doing 
you know, what you describe as decolonizing neurodivergence, um, you know, doing that work around decolonizing divergence. So what is, tell me, what does that mean to you and why do you think it's important? Okay. So decolonizing neurodivergence, uh, I coined that in an in, in edited work in what years in, I think 2022, I think it was. And hmm. what that so let's let's back up for a second. So we're talking mm-hmm. about neurodivergence, just to make sure I'm clear on my terms. What we're talking about is people who whose brain and bodies and minds function in a way that is considered to be atypical and mm-hmm. not in mm-hmm. a inch. And by decolonizing neurodivergence, I'm pushing back on that and mm-hmm. saying that the conversation isn't about neurodivergent, neurotypical, because we live in a colonized society that only sees us as workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, our conversation is shaped such that you're either this or you're that. When in actuality, we are all, we are a neurodiverse range of people with mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. range of needs and um, we need a range of supports. But our society does not want to think in range. So just like we have biodiversity in the ecosystem, we have mm-hmm. neurodiversity within the human experience. Mm-hmm. But we don't mm-hmm. talk like that because our society is not interested in meeting the individual needs. Even though we appear to be very individualistic, we're mm-hmm. not interested in meeting individual needs. But if we looked across the spectrum of human beings, you would see that there's a neurodiverse group of most people can't be put into this category or that category, but we mm-hmm. do it because we typically think of people as our society thinks of people as what kind of workers they're going to be. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you look at diagnostic criteria, when you look at the types of supports that are out there, the supports that are in K through 12, it is about making you get back to work. That's what mm-hmm. it's about. So you're mm-hmm. this or you're that. And by decolonizing that whole notion we get to talk about things like neurodiversity. We get to say everybody's unique in their in in um, their uh, I don't say neurotype, but everybody's unique in their neuroexpression, just as mm-hmm. you have a unique fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And because the conversation is about what our systems need and not what we need personally, mm-hmm. we don't think about those individual needs. We don't yeah. get curious about what individually what people need. You either fall into this or you fall into that. And that's just it. So it is it stops the conversation about what people need. We just don't think that way. And mm-hmm. uh, we just think about how we can categorize things and we can move people along. So decolonizing neurodivergence is about peeling back those layers. And I say to people, if you have if you are late diagnosed, ADHD, Mm -hmm. autism, or other, that is actually an opportunity to decolonize because Mm -hmm. that is a form of resistance to a society that says you have to be this or that. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you know, I I want to, I want to scream it from the mountaintops. Like I I 100% agree. I think, you know, as a late identified neurodivergent person, one of the things that you know, has become very apparent to me is exactly what you were talking about. Is this, you know, one, it's how much of this, how much of society has been built 
on, you know, commodifying us and, and just saying, okay, well, again, what, you know, it takes the, the, the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And it makes it just very, I'll say systemized, right? It's very much so like, are you, you know, a quote unquote blue collar or white collar worker? Like it, it starts to stratify us into these things that, like you said, does not respect, honor, um, or acknowledge the individual expression. And that is also why, like, as we move through this system, we feel like we bump up against it a lot. And it's like, well, we do because it wasn't yeah. created for us. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, and creating awareness around that. I think what, what the thought that's coming to my mind right now is like, I think a lot of times, and I, I think we're going to get to this in a, in a question coming up, but it's like a lot of the times we have been having experiences thinking that it was ourselves. Like it, it's made us, made us turn these things for ourselves. Right. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> it's not, we are not broken. Right. We're not, you know, uh, less than it's the system and how it supports us and, and what it thinks of us and what it wants to force us to do. And so I think, like I said, this, this decolonizing, um, neurodivergence is so important and so powerful, um, for everyone. Um, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit too on the call we were on the other day, but, um, one of the things I firmly believe as well is that when we restructure things to honor th- uh, these, you know, I, I don't know, I don't even want to call us edge cases, right? But I, you know, when we when we build systems that just reflect and honor the individual, it helps everybody. It's not just like, oh, only this corner of people are going to benefit. It's like everybody's going to benefit. Right. And so, like you're talking about something like universal design and considering mm-hmm. the range of so thinking of it from an individual, but also a communal perspective. Absolutely. How can I help meet the most needs? And um, when you think like that and you start with that as your basis, then you actually serve a lot more people. So and going back to what you were saying earlier, so it doesn't allow our systems don't allow for the individual expression, but they don't allow people to have basic needs. For example, how many of us would have had very different experiences if we were, um, if someone attended to our sensory needs, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. making sure we had compression gear that we needed to help us when we were feeling uneasy in our bodies, mm-hmm. um, tempering noise in certain spaces mm-hmm. or giving us sensory input. So because we don't think in terms of needs, School is not even set up to really think that way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it could be something as simple as somebody's gym shoes squeaking on the floor in the mm-hmm. gym that is like setting somebody off. But there's no assistance for that. Mm-hmm. There's just a reaction. And, 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 and so part of this conversation is what systems do. If you are to be compliant with the system, first of all, a lot of our outcomes have been planned outcomes, number one, right? Mm -hmm. So we ended up in places where we're supposed to end up. But when you are focused on the needs of the system, the system needs you to behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when you think about how you were treated throughout your education experiences growing up, it was all about behavior, Mm -hmm. never 
really about your needs. Because if school were based on your needs, it would look very different than it looks because it is about compliance. It's about socializing you mm-hmm. a certain way. And even when you're getting good things and you're getting praises, that still is about your behavior so that you fit some planned outcome. Right. It's not about, well, wait a minute. I actually don't need to go to school today because I'm feeling burned out today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or... Uh, I don't need to be at school for seven hours a day. That doesn't right. work for me. Or I don't need to be taking homework home. We refuse as part of my son's program at school. We refuse homework mm. because it's not necessary. Mm. It's not necessary, and a lot of research shows that it doesn't add anything to the con- add to the conversation. It doesn't add value. And they've already been at work for, I mean, at school for seven hours. Mm-hmm. What they're teaching you is to not have boundaries with work. That's and so mm-hmm. by taking that home, it does two things. It erodes boundaries. Mm-hmm. It does uh, several things. But two, I mentioned here, it erodes boundaries. And number two, it is... It creates tension between the parent and the child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things... That is critical in a neurodivergence child life and critical in every child's life is their relationship with their family. Mm-hmm. And anything that puts additional stress on that is not good for the child. Because when you talk about a neurodivergent child, you have to think of them within the system inside their home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just them as individuals and how they're doing and how they're behaving. But what are their needs? But also, what are the needs of the people who live in the household with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's really fascinating. Um, <laughs> I, I've not heard. I've heard of people choosing homeschooling so that they can, you know, make those decisions for themselves. I've not heard of anybody, um, you know, just like you said, refusing. Can you tell me? Because now. I had other things I was curious about, but I, I don't want that to, to sit out there. Tell me about that experience. Like what 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 was that process like? And and in in yeah, tell me about that process for, for kind of making that decision for your family. So um as part of what they call the individualized education plan, mm-hmm. we because I'm an academic, I read a lot of academic articles and I'm and I'm clear on what the research says. And mm-hmm. Also, I got clear on what I believe and what I value. Mm -hmm. And anything that gets in the way of my connection with my child, because it's tough enough having a child who is neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And anything that interferes with that parent-child connection is a problem. It is not helpful. Mm -hmm. And um, you think about all the screaming matches that could be eliminated by Mm -hmm. not sending homework home. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the the rancor that could be eliminated uh, if you didn't send home. And so in the meeting, just one of my requests is because I know this is a reasonable request. Other people have made it is that we do not want to have homework. Mm-hmm. And so they try to push back a little bit and say, well, you know, he'll need to do his work during school. OK, fine. He can manage himself. Mm-hmm. He can make that happen. But but I know it only adds to the confusion of our household for him to bring home homework. Yeah. Yeah, that's and see what I also love about that is, um, you know, one there was some compromise, but there was this very clear. It wasn't just you showing up and being like, "No, we don't want it." It was like there's come from an, in a place of um, being informed, 
but also understanding right. like look like i this is what i this is the experience that i'm trying to create and i think um right. a lot of folks um are not some folks are not necessarily clear about what that experience what experience they want but i think sometimes folks are scared to advocate for those experiences and um that's again i'm so glad that you shared that because uh yeah i think in a lot of ways the way that schools are set up I, you know one of the things i was going to say earlier that is related to this as well is i'm on a on a board for a uh, k-8 school and I don't know, several months ago, we had a conversation about, um, we were doing a lot of work around updating the school's mission and vision. And so a lot of the work we were thinking about was, okay, in 20 years, 30 years, like what should, how should this school be set up? What kinds of things Mm -hmm. should we be doing? You know, we had this plan from before and we kind of had this model from before, but like, if we're going to be setting the vision for, you know, 20 years, like what do we want? folks to be doing then and, and a lot of that involved rethinking you know accommodations in the school and you know what we wanted the community to look like and and what does the future of progressive learning look like right and so a lot of these questions are related to exactly what you're talking about because if we just kind of do exactly what's been done for you know however many years we're going to get the same results. And, and, and frankly, I, I think worse because we as humans are changing. And, and that means that, you know, society is changing. If we continue to, to use a model that doesn't fit how we're, we're progressing, then the results are just going to get, you know, worse and worse. So um, no, I think you have to ask yourself, I think you have to, you really have to, and this is decolonizing. Mm-hmm. You really have to ask yourself, what do you want from this? Mm-hmm. Are you growing human beings? Or are you growing workers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if at the end of the day, in the back of your mind, you still are really thinking workers, mm-hmm. it is going to shape. And I don't care how you get there and how many, you know, um, off ramps you take and exit ramps and back on and meander mm-hmm. and circuitous routes. You're still going to get to the same place where you treat people like labor. Mm-hmm. It all depends on what you value. If you value growing workers, that is going to show up over and over again. It cannot help but show up. So what you have is a lot of new age schools that say that they're doing something different. And good luck, you know, and I'm not assuming this is the case with yours, but there are a lot of schools out there that say that they're doing something different, Mm -hmm. but what they're actually doing is preserving the status quo. Mm-hmm. And existing power uh, relationships, and so um, by being heavy-handed about grades, mm-hmm. uh, not allowing a lot of flexibility, um, there was something else I was going to say, and it, it kind of left me. But mm-hmm. um, but in these spaces, you get to see how resistant, how adamant we are that we're going to continue to uphold mm-hmm. these values. Because if it is to just come into these spaces, again, just referring to all other, you know, all schools in general, mm-hmm. if the point is to come into these new spaces and position some kids above others, position certain families above others, mm-hmm. then we really are doing the same thing. We've just recycled it and put it in a different environment. So are we thinking about how long they actually need to be at school? Mm-hmm. Are we thinking about whether or not they have sensory rooms? 
jobs? Mm -hmm. Are we thinking about um, whether we give grades as opposed to doing narratives for students? Mm -hmm. Are we really thinking about different, are we supporting the, if, if the family has an autistic child, are we providing support for the family because the child does not exist the child exists within a context. Mm -hmm. If we're not talking about those things, we're just doing more of the same. Right. And we're calling it something different. We're putting a different kind of frosting on the same cake. Yeah, I I love this. Um, <laughs> for those who listen enough, I, I, they know that I'm a super huge Bell, Bell Hooks fan. And when, what came to mind as you were talking about this is Bell Hooks was someone who, um, it, for her, feminism wasn't just about, you know, whatever, like putting women as equals to men, right? It was about like domination period is, is wrong, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, black people shouldn't just become the new dominators, right? It's like right. all this right. domination is wrong. So we have to completely deconstruct all of this stuff. And if we just simply, you know, you know, change the color, right? <laughs> if we simply just change whose name is on there, we've not really done the work. And, and so, um, again, that's I, I really, really love um, that focus and what what you're describing. Um, so, not to completely shift gears, but um, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the the work that you do. So, tell me a little bit about what typically. And I guess it's still, you know, it's still very much related, but like, tell me what typically compels someone to reach out to you for coaching or, or consulting? Like what would typically bring someone through your door? So um, I work with a lot of creatives mm -hmm. and very, uh, I typically work with people who have big ideas, who are pattern readers. Usually it takes them anywhere from six months to about two years to reach out to me. i I have somebody I'm working with now. It took them three years to reach out to me because they they needed to kind of sit in the cut and see what was happening mm -hmm. and see if my message changed and see if I was the real deal mm -hmm. and see if I was really a person that understood neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. Like, did did my message change? Did my language change? And they saw that it didn't. Like, I've been pretty consistent. Uh, typically, the person is um, so uh, more more than likely. No, I think it entirely. They have some sort of transformational work they want to do mm. where they're trying to liberate something or they're trying to transform something in society. So I've had people, one person who's trying to start an artist, who is starting an artist cooperative. Mm -hmm. I had a person who is in instructional design, cannabis education, a uh, person who was starting a tech company for doulas to support doulas, mm. um, supporting people who are spiritual uh, spiritualists. So I, I attract people who have these big visions and may not know how to implement or know what resources they need to implement. And so what I do is help grab the big ideas and bring them down to a size that they can actually implement them and make things happen. Mm -hmm, with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, again, really helpful uh, for folks because, you know, and neurodivergent people by definition our minds are going to to think differently about stuff and 
I'd say one of the things I've run into too is like, or is I've started to realize that a lot of the tools that are out there for helping to make sense of the world assume things that don't necessarily, you know, fit right. our world. They don't apply to right. us. And so, um, and so that can be really frustrating, right? Because you're like, wait, I've got these, I know these, these great, great ideas. I've, I can kind of see these different things, I, the patterns and all that, but how do I synthesize that, um, you know, in a way that is uh, actionable, right? I think um, that is super, super powerful for you to be helping folks is to, like you said, you know, bring everything together because um, even to being able to communicate with someone about that, like that's, the, that's a huge, huge thing because sometimes our ideas, and again, the nature of the podcast title is, you know, you can feel like you're bugging, right? You can feel like, what you're saying is not making any sense. And then you get to talking to somebody that can grab all the, the pieces out of the air and keep that thread. And then it's like, oh, no, this makes perfect sense. I can see exactly how you got there. And then you're like, right, oh, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really? Yeah. Right, so right. and the people I work with, we don't have an issue. I think as you're pointing out with coming up with ideas is sometimes it's having too many mm-hmm, ideas. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people all the time, I don't do tips and hacks. Like I can, mm-hmm. I can give you lots of information about a lot of stuff and give you this tip and that tip, but that's not what makes my work valuable. Mm-hmm. What makes my work valuable is providing people a framework to think about what belongs here in this idea and what does not belong yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, because that's the thing, like they don't have a framework they, they, they haven't, they don't have a scope for what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to do a lot of different yeah. things. And so we have to find a way to bring that in so that we can isolate exactly what you're trying to do. And so that the people who really need to hear you can actually hear it. Yeah. That I, I hope everybody listened to that last part, because to me, that just was super resonant about, you know, like you said, making sure that the people, you know, th- those that you want to hear hear you can actually hear you because that um I, and I was having a conversation this morning with somebody just about in a broader sense about the the human need to feel heard and understood and when we're talking about our big ideas which we tend to identify with right like that's a part those are our quote-unquote babies right those are a part of like who we are in this world feeling like you can't be seen or heard is such a a challenging experience. So again, you're doing really, really important work, um, you know, in the broader sense. And then, like I said, in just the literal sense around providing frameworks and stuff like that. Um, So one issue that my clients mm -hmm. have, um, it's because many of us have been marginalized in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. So we've been left out of things or we've been ignored or our needs haven't been addressed. I think it's, like if, if people are trying to start a business or they're trying to start an organization, one of the things that they need a lot of assistance with, a lot of support with, is knowing that they don't have to include everybody. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So because they don't want to exclude anybody, they don't want to leave anybody out. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to run an organization, when you're trying to run a business, you don't serve everybody. Right. You have to identify the population that you're working yeah. with. Yeah, that's, that's super important um again when you've got all the ideas and i i think again when you talked about the marginalization like you don't want to you don't want to feel like you're marginalizing anybody and so you're trying to like right. include everybody right. and so um right. 
but there's a there's a difference between marginalizing and just having a a target. I guess is sort of the, the way of speaking. Right, 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 and understanding the scope of the yep, work that you're absolutely, doing. absolutely. Um, so kind of tangentially, you know, kind of uh, moving forward from there, you know, tell, tell let's talk a little bit about what are some of the unique challenges that Black people and other melanated and marginalized communities face when it comes to diagnosis and getting support. I mean, I know um, that can really be a challenge. Um, do you have any thoughts about about that? It's, uh, as you mentioned before we started, a lot of the diagnose, diagnostic criteria is still based upon research done on white mm-hmm. people. So that in itself is a problem. Um, also, with Black neurodivergent people, we are butting up against stereotypes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's go back to the conversation about behavior versus needs. Mm. We are we are under constant surveillance when we are in K twelve mm. and other environments. Like mm. to be black is to be under surveillance and to be monitored. Mm-hmm. And in that surveillance, what is being observed is your behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and even if you're doing all the right things, your behavior could be interpreted as noncompliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the point is that the behavior is getting more attention than the needs mm-hmm. you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you meet the underlying needs, because behavior is a communicator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but if you meet the underlying needs, then that addresses the behavior. But because people just want compliance mm-hmm. or they just want to manage the movement of black children, then those needs do not get met because you're too focused on obedience and compliance. And this happens at school, but it also happens at home as well. Because the parents are used to being under surveillance. And so they just pass that along. And so one of the biggest challenges is seeing Black children as whole people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and people who have human needs. Mm -hmm. If you do not fundamentally accept the personhood of black children, then these needs will not get met. They will not be, no one will be curious about how to meet those needs. And so rather than talk about, um, I think you brought this up about the prisons and rather than talk about um, why someone has a meltdown every day during lunch period, Mm -hmm. Rather than talk about it, you see a pattern, mm-hmm. right? But rather than talk about that, well, how are we going to clamp down on him mm-hmm, today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, maybe you can look at the environment in, in the lunchroom. Maybe it's every time they serve fish sticks, there's a problem. Yeah. Because he's having, yeah. something is happening mm-hmm. there. Or maybe it's the noise in the classroom. I mean, in the in the lunchroom. Or maybe it's, it's you're moving him from place to place too mm-hmm. fast. The transitions are too fast for an autistic mm-hmm. child. So you refuse to look at the environment and consider that there are numerous environmental factors that you could control. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big things is dependence on the stereotype. But it's not even that. It is the lack of people's willingness to accept the personhood of black children and black Mm. people. Man, I, so much fire in what you just shared. Like, 
I it's literally not possible for me to agree more. I mean, you know, I, I think the fundamental message around accepting and seeing the humanity in anyone, but particularly in black people, is at the core of why so many of these challenges come up. You know, I as I was doing my investigation into um, you know, my neurodivergence and, and what giftedness looked like looked like um, you know, during my schooling, just to kind of go back to the schooling part, you know, I had several experiences that I can look at where white children did either the same thing or worse, and they were, you know, praised or they yeah. were recognized like, oh, this we need to give Johnny some support. For me, it was yeah, this you're you're out of line, you know, you, you know, talking about principal's office or you know, so many different things, and there have been studies. Um, I'm trying to think of what this was, but I, I just remember reading this study where they had teachers um, observing like whatever, let's say five or six kids around a table. And they were like basically asking them to point out when somebody's like doing something wrong. And uh-huh. with, you know, without fail, those whose whose eyes they were, fi- so they fixated their eyes most on the little black children. And noticing their yeah. behaviors and calling out their behaviors, and they were like, "Well, this kid over here <laughs> was actually the one who was, you know, doing something." But you were so focused on, uh, you know. Yeah, and I've seen studies mm-hmm. like that. There was one where they were videotaping teachers, and and the observation was that if a black boy were slow to respond, it's like, "Oh my God, he's slow. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know." He's disruptive, and, and a white boy doing the same thing is, oh, he's thoughtful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's taking his time Abs- to figure it out. Absolutely. And it's like you can look at the exact same thing, the exact same behavior, and frame it differently um, if you do not fundamentally believe in the personhood of the mm-hmm. child, and you are adultifying yeah. them. You are assuming you are assigning more intent. Mm-hmm. The thing with neurodivergent black children, the double whammy, mm-hmm. is they are often very intelligent. Mm-hmm very capable and so then you can look to test scores and you can look to academic performance and say see they know Mm -hmm, better mm, they mm -hmm, absolutely mm -hmm, know better mm -hmm. but the thing about neurodivergent children is what they call un un, uh, uneven skills Mm -hmm. or uh, asynchronous Mm -hmm, skills mm -hmm. or uneven skills something like that where they may be very proficient at something but not be able to tie Absolutely. their shoes. Absolutely. Very proficient at something and be 11 years old and start to regress in mm-hmm. other ways to an eight-year-old uh, because they be, they suddenly became afraid mm-hmm. of something. And so then they started back sucking their thumb or some other behavior that was typical of them when they were eight yeah. years old. So there's, and, and, and this is what I'm talking about with neurodiversity. You know, we assume that human beings are one mm-hmm. thing but we're all a lot of different things. And even within ourselves, mm-hmm. we're a lot of different things at different yes, times. Absolutely. And if you don't think of it from that neurodiverse lens, then you do not allow for room. You do not allow room for those types of behaviors and the underlying needs that go along with, or the behaviors, the needs that underlie the behaviors. Yeah. No, um, again, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a hundred percent on, on board with that. And I, like you said, the, the behaviors are are signals of unmet needs, right? There's so much power 
uh, you know, one of the things I just generally say in life, and I just kind of came up with this recently, just as phrasing at least, was, you know, how important it is to check in before you check out, right? Because there's so mm-hmm. much, uh, you know, th- so many things where people are like, oh, this again, this is such and such behavior. This is bad, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, did you check in to see if maybe, you know, they had something going on at home? Did you check in, you know, right. whatever those things are, right? right? And if you say, oh. Or there's something going on no, here no, at school. No, exactly right. No, exactly. It could be something going on at the school. And I, yeah. I know that there have depth. I mean, even I'll just say, I've shared this story before on the podcast, but like literally, literally first grade, the teacher thought exactly what you just said. Sheldon is, you know, disinterested, disrespectful, you know, not capable, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Come to find out, you know, my mom comes down to the school and it's like, hmm, that doesn't sound like Sheldon. I was bored. I was, I, I slept through first grade because it was like, what are we doing here? I'm, I know all these different things. Yeah. And so yeah. instead of saying, immediately thinking, let's actually talk to this child and see what's going on. No, let's demonize this child. And, you know, I know people who tell stories about being put into, you know, separate classrooms um, and all these different things. And, you know, the last thing I'll just say really quickly is I know in working in um, different environments where, quote unquote, delinquent children were, that a lot of the times their behaviors were very much so just based on, like you said, what was happening at the school, what was happening at home, and just an outgrowth of the the unmet needs. And once you kind of, you know, address those things, spoke to those things, you actually made a lot of inroads and kind of getting them to come along with you, I guess is sort of the way of saying it. No, they're trying to exist in a carceral Mm -hmm. system that is designed to imprison Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a carceral system is going to be a carceral Mm -hmm. system. Yeah, no, that's... And place their needs very low priority if prior if if at all mm-hmm. no that's that's exactly it and like i said we could do 10 podcasts on, on, on that because um yeah i mean there's so much you know as we talk about the layers of how you know uh melanated marginalized communities end up in these you know institutions um it's so many different angles that they you know you know can you know can come from to to end up there and how frustrating it is, like, just thinking in my mind about, even in grad school, like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about in grad school, I, you know, I have my engineering degree, I'm coming here, I've mm-hmm. got, you know, I'm at this higher place of learning, I'm not 12 years old anymore, and yet, right, the assumptions about my behavior, it might as well have been from, you know, being a five-year-old Right. Sure. No, no, it carries and, and, through. And, and oddly, uh, ironically, or coincidentally, <laughs> I am starting to focus on how to support grad mm. students because I used to be an a dean, associate dean of graduate mm-hmm. studies. So I'm thinking more about how to support graduate students in that process and asking questions of like the disability services mm-hmm. office, of the mm-hmm. libraries, of the writing centers, of the tutoring centers to to really investigate 
how they are attempting to address yeah. your needs. Yeah, no, that's really, really important work. Like I said, I I know there were, you know, what I was going to say even is like, there are times when I'm like, I'm trying to actually comply or like fit into this box, but you're seeing me as doing the complete opposite. And that now my reaction is a frustration and, and, and the, the thought, the, the, the quote that I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but uh, I think MLK probably did actually say this, but it was like, you know, he's talking about people asking, you know, he asked him about the riots and they were basically saying that these riots are, you know, basically a reflection of people feeling unheard. Right. And if we don't sit around, if we, if we sit around and just think, oh, black people just love destroying their neighborhood versus wait, who would, right. who would go around doing this if not for something you right. know, else going on? And so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this is, again, a little bit of a shift here, but I, I know I'm very, very curious about, you know, this experience because I just started to realize, one, how much these things are tied together, and two, how few people are aware that they are tied together. So, you know, in some cases, people know that they have ADHD or, um, or on the autism spectrum, um, but many don't realize that they have both. Um, and I know I've seen studies that, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the percentages off the top of my head, but they, it's apparently there's a, a large percentage of folks who do, um, you know, end up having, having both. And, you know, if you've uh, seen any of those studies or have any thoughts about that, I'd be curious as to, you know, why do you think that exists? And, you know, how does one begin to recognize maybe when there's something more? Re-ask me your question. Yeah, sorry. So yeah, I, that was that was a little bit uh, convoluted. So. No, it's okay. I just want to make sure I, I yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah. So it. so basically, what I'm asking is that you know this is kind of tied to this thought of like the diagnosis and the challenges around diagnosis is that some a lot of times people will get diagnosed with one thing, whether it be ADHD or ASD, let's say, but they will feel mm-hmm. like there's something more, like the the, the medication or the supports that are not not. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, one, why do why do you think that that happens where they're only getting diagnosed for one? And then two, how is it that someone um, can can recognize when it's not just one? It is both. Is that hopefully that clarifies the question? Okay. so the first part is, why is that happening? Why are they sometimes they get diagnosed Mm -hmm. for one thing and there clearly is something else that's happening there that is mm-hmm. unexplained, mm-hmm. I think is what you're asking me. Um, in a colonized system, that makes sense, right? Because it's about a path of least mm-hmm. resistance. It could, for that person, but also for a healthcare system that pathologizes mm-hmm. the And so it is about getting to, going back to just a colonized mindset, when you go and you seek a diagnosis, and, and I am all for diagnosis, and if you need one, mm-hmm. you should get one. But just recognize that there are a lot of people out there who are trying to trying to get to that quick, simple mm-hmm, answer. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to, to get you there and move you on, get you in a treatment uh, program. That's not everybody, but that 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 is a lot of people. Um, but going back to the personhood, if they do not see you as a person, they cannot be bothered to listen mm-hmm. to what your needs are. And hear the whole thing mm-hmm. that's happening. 
And so number one, making sure you're working with people who fundamentally see you as a whole person who's willing to ask questions because this answers the second part. There has to be genuine curiosity mm-hmm. for there, mm-hmm. for there in this situation. And um, it doesn't like the expertise matters and, and all of that is important, but you, you need to be genuinely curious about yourself mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. judgment mm-hmm. and work with people who are genuinely curious about you, because it is only through that, that, that non-judgmental curiosity that you can allow these things to really come through. And, and some of the things that you have to be curious about, going back to the decolonizing thing, is you have to be curious about the different systems that have played a role mm. in your life, how you have been harmed by those systems, but also how you have participated in those systems to do harm mm. to other mm. people. And what is your role? What is your expected role within those systems? When you can start to deconstruct that and pull that apart, that gives you an opportunity to really sit down and exist mm-hmm. with your needs without mm-hmm. judgment. Um, and when you start to separate that, you can start to say things like, oh, my God, like, you mean I don't really have mm-hmm. to do that? Even if they told me my whole life I had to do that. But what this also means is when you start to deconstruct and decolonize, and this can be in conjunction with the diagnosis. There is a grieving process because what you will have to come mm-hmm. to terms with is you are not the person mm-hmm. they said you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, you have to start to recognize yeah. yourself all over yeah. again. That's you just said so again several things that were extremely insightful because as we go through this process of again whatever your neurodivergence you know uh, entails, as particularly as late identified or late diagnosed folks one of the, the the things that you have to be aware of is there's going to be this you know re, not just reawakening right when we talk about the reawakening it's like oh i'm aware of some things but there's this also of like oh wait like what i know one of the questions i keep hearing from folks is what part of me is me and what part of me is this system right, right. and that right. is not a comfortable place to be particularly Oh, it's, it's, it's very right. Particularly, I love you're talking about the judgment, the freedom of judgment, because when you still have that judgment baked in, you know, one of the, the systems is around ableism, right? So when you're not even aware mm-hmm. of the ableism that you've been subjected subjected to and that you've participated in, right? You come in like, oh, wait a second. Like you said, I don't have to, I'm not this person. I don't have to be this person. I, you know. I wasn't put here to serve right, other exactly. people all the time. <laughs> right. so you, like as a black woman, you exactly. have to examine that. Your life is not no, about servitude. No, 100%. And so um, it's so, it's so powerful to to do that work. It's challenging. You know, you need a lot of grace. You need to give yourself a lot of time to to work through it and, but it's so powerful to 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 do it because on the other side, like you said, you have you know you have yourself, you have the, the self that you've been been wrestling with, right? Like that's for me what this journey for mm-hmm. me has been so much about is realizing how much I've been wrestling with the true self, and 
because of the the judgments, right. because of the expectations, right. because of you know who I told myself or was I allowed other people to to tell me that I had to be, and in choosing my true self, it's like it's scary, Sheldon. You don't you know there's there's going to be people who are not going to get it. Yeah, and you're not going to find the answer in most self help <laughs> books because it, they do not get to the root of the problem, which is your relationship. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. And so if you don't ever address that, um, if you don't ever examine that, you can do like all the self-help stuff that you want to do. And it just kind of keeps you, you know, I talk about how it keeps you in a, in a cycle of um, hope, optimism, mm. and self-loathing. Hope, optimism, mm-hmm. and self-loathing. Hope, optimism, mm-hmm. and self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't really offer you any answers. It doesn't really offer you any new insights not really not not for an extended mm-hmm. period of time and so that's why it doesn't um it doesn't work for you and and um so one of the things I, I think you want to talk about is like what do i wish the world had had like what capacity do i wish the world mm-hmm. would build mm-hmm. for us is um room to investigate mm-hmm. these things room to rip room to Mm -hmm. restore um because what i found especially like over like the pandemic and people being home and it's initially when we were never really under a lockdown but when people sequestered at home for a while it gave people time to stop and pause Mm -hmm. and think and when people had time to do that the conversations changed and so I, I, I wish we had more capacity to to question, to be curious, to rest, to restore, um, to just breathe and look around and, and see what's happening mm-hmm. with us and then seeing what's happening with other people and more room for a relationship. Because as it is now, the way things are set up now, it is a challenge to relationship with ourselves and with yeah. other people. No, um yeah, you're right. That's definitely one of the questions that I have is around the capacity. And then even, you know, kind of the, the next question that I, I was going to even go into, which is, you know, how do we find the balance between, you know, making neurodivergence a part of our identity, but also like not defining us, right? Like, I think there's something to be said for, and I also love what you said earlier. I wanted to make sure that I called that out. Like, when you talked about neurodivergence, it wasn't just about the mind, it was about the body, right? And and understanding that this is a right, part of right. how I'm wired throughout my being, right? Um, right. And so I right. can't separate that from myself. At the same time, right. you know, I am not just, you know, the different manifest behaviors let me say it that way right like i'm still a full human being going back mm-hmm. to again what you said earlier how do we because I, I think that's where um a lot of the judgment and a lot of the the angst around doing the investigation comes in is because you know for example you know i'll just again i'll talk about myself one of the things that i i know and i, I laugh with people i've told this story before but when i got my school records as i was doing my investigation and, and identifying I went back and luckily got my school records. And from second grade, it said, Sheldon does not remember names. And 
this is something that for my entire life has been true. I'm like, I don't, I don't remember street names well. I don't remember people's names well. And I just always thought that, you know, I don't know, maybe I wasn't paying attention or whatever it was, but what it made me realize is that, and through other investigation, that this was just a part, again, of how my wiring worked. And so I bring that up just to say that, yes, that is a part of who I am, but it is not all of me, right? Like I'm, I'm a bigger, you know, there's a bigger story to tell about myself. Um, but if I get focused on right. that, I can get kind of down like, oh, this is again, just a deficiency, but it's like, so how do I, right. how do we kind of find that balance? I guess, you know, to, to, to love our whole selves. I think you have to, you have to decide, you have to realize who's mm. telling the story about you. Right. So if we go back to your record, that's a story about you, but it's also a story about mm-hmm, the person mm-hmm, observing mm-hmm. you. And so all of that is mm-hmm. value laden. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck does it matter if Sheldon can't remember streets? Mm-hmm. Sheldon can mm-hmm. Google it now. Why does it, it, it's okay if Sheldon doesn't remember a phone number because they're mm-hmm. on his phone mm-hmm. now. Right? Because they associated that with learning. So that's mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. about Absolutely. them as well. That's not just a story about them. And when we talk about pulling these things apart, Absolutely. that's what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Um, you know, you made me just think about, you know, even going back to what you're talking about with the the shoestring, t- people tying sh- their shoes. Like, I know that there was a time in which, uh, you know, whether or not it was that I couldn't or whether I just didn't like it, that's a whole separate question. But I remember, you know, there was a, a time mm-hmm. where it was like, Sheldon, you can do all these different things at a high level. What's up with you not tying your shoes? Right. And I know there was a, uh, like a I don't know if it was on Twitter, it was somewhere on social media where parents were like super concerned because their child was not meeting these so-called milestones. And, right. but it was like, well, does he, could like, let's just say that their, your child will figure that part out. Like, could you not just give them, you know, Velcro shoes or whatever, some other kind of accommodation, right? In the meantime, because that's right. not really going to define their success or happiness in life you know what i mean no it's not it's not so so yeah i mean like i said i love the again touching on that it's like again mm -hmm, that's a story mm -hmm. about them and their understanding and their skill Mm -hmm, level mm -hmm. and their knowledge absolutely absolutely um so i i do want to ask this one question uh at before we kind of round out you've talked a little bit about it but you know for the parents who are listening um can you tell us maybe just a, a little bit about how you describe your experience parenting a neurodivergent um, child? Mm. Uh, it's very challenging. Very challenging. Um, I think you mm. have to be a student. I have to. I think you have to spend more mm-hmm. time observing and just taking note of, and mm-hmm. less time mm-hmm. reacting. So. Everything does not require an mm-hmm, immediate mm-hmm. reaction. Most things are going to be okay, even if you don't react in that moment. And my philosophy is connection over e- connection mm-hmm, even more mm-hmm. than discipline. Because at the end of the day, what my child is going to know is that there's a safety net. And as long as I'm alive, my husband is alive, my relatives are alive, that there's a safety net, there's mm-hmm. a safe place where he can land. That is more important than correcting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. him on everything. And here's the kicker. The way his neurodivergence works, 
you can't correct everything in the present. You have to let mm -hmm. it settle and come back to him later because mm -hmm. he cannot hear you. And that's the thing. So that's how you get into power struggles. Because if the way their neurodivergence works, like if they have what they call the persistent drive for autonomy, where in, in that hard right wired neural system and kind of what mm -hmm. people call rigid thinking, when you're when they're in the heat of the moment and you're trying to impose your will and trying to tell them better and get them to do this and do that, yeah, that's a power struggle. And when you are in a power struggle with them, you've already lost if you're yeah. in the power struggle with them. So Cut yourself some slack. Be curious. Be a student of what is happening to your child. You are not going to lose anything by taking time to observe what they need and really plugging into what they need yeah. and not the behavior. I think that's beautiful. And like you said a whole lot without saying many things, if that makes any sense. But I, I, I love that the connection over the discipline, because I think Again, the way that the system is set up, it wants us to think that parenting is primarily about the discipline, right? And it is. It's carceral. It's ca Ab because it's absolutely. a carceral system. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, and 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 understanding that again in this moment, me, I'm I'm fighting, I'm fighting a losing battle if I ch I try to like get the lesson absolutely like you know right now. It's not that. That's right. not going to work. Right. Um, and if ultimately. This is this is not the place where you need to be the teacher or the preacher. This is mm -hmm. this is not no, the place. To I, do it. I yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's like I said, a beautiful, beautiful thing. So um, we talk a little bit about what, you know, we think the world should build capacity for. I don't know if you had, you know, maybe one or two other things you want to say about that. But otherwise, um, I did want to ask a related but slightly different question uh, about you know maybe what are like two things um that you think are keys to neurodivergent healing and thriving that you know you might want to share with folks uh, a couple of things number one have grace mm -hmm. for yourself because you were told that you were one person and you were one thing and you're mm, so many mm -hmm, things. Mm -hmm. And so have as part of having grace, just be curious about yourself. Just how do you tick? What makes you do things? Why? And allow you, if you can't allow yourself to do that without judgment. And then number two, I want to go back to something mm -hmm. that you talked about earlier is having an embodied experience. Everything about this system is about separating from mm -hmm. you, your mind, and your body. So know that you are a sensory mm -hmm. organism. And so, you know, how do you smell, taste, mm -hmm. touch, feel the world? How do you, you know, what is your space in the world? Uh, you know, how do you take up space relative to, this, to what's happening around you mm -hmm. in your environment? And so allow yourself to have that embodied experience, to feel the feelings, to interpret the world mm -hmm. as you interpret it without judgment. You can judge it later, but in that moment, if you can, just allow yourself to have those experiences because you are having to reimagine mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. you are. 
And that is a yeah. really tall or. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, I just want to touch again on the sensory part because I think a lot of people, there's, uh, which just pops in my mind, of, of course, my mind's trying to tell me this. It reminds me of the joke that everybody talks about, um, that about people driving and it's like, do you turn the music down while you're driving to, you know, you know, park better or, or, you know, find your way. Right. And right. generally speaking, that just seems like a joke or whatever. It's kind of like a, a strange quirk. But when you think about it, when you understand the sensory inputs that are going on, like you're processing all of this information, taking one of those and Right. That's right. Right. It's right. A lot like of you're turning one of those. It's it literally works. It's not just like you know a weird thing. Um, and understanding that. Wait. So if this is happening just when I'm driving and trying to park, where else is this happening? You know, how else are these sensory, you know, uh, inputs impacting just my ability to to move through the world? Um, and if I did, if there were a way to quote unquote turn the dial down on one of those things, how might I be able to show up, you know, better, you know, to to love myself more, to see myself more, mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Like, again, I I'm hundred percent, you know, uh, agree with that, um, and I think it's really important to 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 say, um, is, are there is there anything else? Are there any, sorry? Is there anything else uh, that you wanted to say about again? We talked a little bit more er, a little earlier about you know things that we wish the world created more capacity for. Did you want to add anything else to that? Um, um, I think underneath it all is mm-hmm. do you see me as a person? Because if you see me as a person, if you see me as a whole person deserving of personhood, deserving of humanity, then you're going to create mm-hmm. space for me. You're going to devote resources to enhance, to increasing the capacity mm-hmm. for my safety. You're going to do those things if you fundamentally see me as a human being. And so I encourage people, like, you know, like we've talked about a lot of challenges. But it is critical that you see mm-hmm. your own humanity. And for parents, it is critical that you see your mm-hmm. child mm-hmm. as a whole person. It doesn't matter if they're four or five years old, but a, a child, a person who is four or five years old, who has lots of insights about what, um, about their embodied experience, because they haven't been talking mm-hmm. about their embodied mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. So, See your own personhood. See the person, your child's personhood in the, in the humanity yeah. and the personhood of others. Yeah. Um, I love that. And this is seemingly random, but I, it's something I want to make sure that I explicitly say is that one of the things I've appreciated about having you join me is, you know, speaking to this as a Black woman, I know that there are again, it's doing this work. There are so many things that there's like levels of, um, I'll just say oppression. I'll just call it oppression, right? That people 
mm-hmm. think, oh, that's the last level. And it's like, well, no, like, <laughs> you know, with the ways in which all these things intersect, black women, their voice is often misconstrued or silenced. And for me, just speaking about this in general is important, but making sure that, um, like I said, your voice and the voices of other, you know, black women are heard to, so that we know that there's not a speculation about, mm-hmm. you know, your perspective and, and how you're viewing things. Like it's so, so important. Right. So I'm, I'm just really grateful, um, you know, that you were able to come through and, and share your, your voice. Um, uh, and like I said, I just wanted to make sure that I called that out. Um, yeah. Um, so having said that, you know, can you want to tell us about any, you know, upcoming existing projects or upcoming projects or, you know, how folks can find you, book you, all that fun stuff? Um, so I am always happy to talk with people about um, speaking mm-hmm. engagements, webinars. You can, the quickest way to get me is Dr. Kimberly Douglas, 2S's.com. My website is going through some changes because I'm mm-hmm. changing my focus on a few things. But if you want to talk about anything that I mentioned here, I can provide support in all the areas that I mentioned. Just uh, or you can email me at Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S at mm-hmm. DrKimberlyDouglas.com. Either one of those would be good. If you send me an email, just mention the podcast, to mm-hmm. let, you mm-hmm. know, just to give me a frame of reference. But I'm happy to talk with you. Um, I started out doing parent coaching and um, I you know, have friends who do that. But if there's something regarding parent stuff you want to talk about, I'm happy to talk mm-hmm. with you about that as well. But just encourage people to just be curious about yourself and just know that uh, the decolonizing process is not pray <laughs> love. It's not self-help. That's not what this is. It is it is fundamentally discovering yeah. who you are. No, that's that's a beautiful way to to wrap things up. And I will put all that stuff uh, ways to con- contact you into the show notes. But um, I, again, I, I, I love this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Douglas, for coming through. Um, ho- yes. And, and hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll circle, circle back. But um, thank you again. Uh, yeah, this has been really powerful. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for another episode of I Must Be Buggy. I hope you've learned something, became curious, and most importantly, felt affirmed by what you heard. Remember, this podcast is all about sharing compassionate narratives about who we are and how we contribute to the beautiful and necessary diversity of humanity. This is our place to unmask and just be. Don't forget to connect with me on IG at I Must Be Buggin, where I'm eager to see you share your thoughts, your experiences, and your stories. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. Leave a review and subscribe. It helps others who are eager for community find our people. So thank you again for being a part of the I Must Be Bugging community. I can't wait for the next episode. Until then, stay up and enjoy who you were meant to be. And remember, you're not bugging. You're brilliant.